Okay, the Bible reading is on page 182 of the Pew Bibles, and we're staying at verse 10. Okay, and Moses is speaking to the Israelites, um, staying at verse 10. All of you are standing today before the Lord your God, your leaders, tribes, elders, officials, all the men of Israel, your children, your wives, and the foreigners in your camps who cut your wood and draw your water so that you may enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, which he is making with you today, so that you may enter into his oath, and so that he may establish you today as his people, and he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am making this covenant and this oath, not only with you, but also with those who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not here today. Verse 22, future generations of your children who follow you and the foreigner who comes from a distant country will see the plagues of the land and the sickness the Lord has inflicted on it. All its soil will be a burning waste of sulphur and salt, unsown, producing nothing with no plant growing on it, just like the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admar and Zeboim, which the Lord demolished in, the fierce, in his fierce anger. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? Then people will answer, it is because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he has made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They began to worship other gods, bowing down to gods they had not known, gods that the Lord had not permitted them to worship. Therefore the Lord's anger burned against this land, and he brought every curse written in this book on it. The Lord uprooted them from their land in his anger, rage and great wrath and threw them into another land where they are here today. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever so that we may follow all the words of this law. The second reading comes from Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. This is found on page 1077. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then, 
You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building, being put together by him, grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tim and Anoop. My name's Dan, if I haven't met you before. Uh, my pleasure to be preaching this evening. It'd be great if you could uh, keep your Bibles open to that first reading, Deuteronomy 29. We'll get there first, and uh, we'll go to Ephesians a little bit later. Um, I want to ask a question this evening, and that is, uh, what are you doing here? Uh, why, why do you come to church? I don't mean why do you come to this church, but why do you come to church? I actually want you to think about that. Well, what, what's the answer? I'm going to have a guess at maybe what some of your answers might have been. Um, maybe some of you are saying, uh, I'm not a Christian yet, and I want to find out about Jesus. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Some other people might have uh, thought to themselves, uh, church helps me grow as a Christian. That's why I'm here. I like to fellowship with other Christians. Um, it helps me connect with God. These are all good answers. Um, I asked my wife, Olivia, the, uh, this same question, why do you go to church? And uh, I probably shouldn't um, publicly, publicly humiliate her, but I will. Um, she said, habit. It's quite honest. I love my wife's honesty. She said, habit. And I thought, that's actually, I think that's me as well. If I didn't work here, then uh, habit would be it. I grew up going to church twice on Sundays. Why? I don't know. We just did. It was habit. And then my wife added this very interesting line. She said, deep down, I know there's a reason why it's good and right to go to church. Deep down, I know there's a good reason. Well, this evening, I really want to try to get at that good reason, that deep down reason. What is it in us? I kind of, we feel we should go to church. Because I don't think it's just some kind of, you know, thing like, oh, Christians go to church, so yeah, yeah. I actually think it's a, it's a work of the Spirit of God. I believe that the gospel actually forces us to gather as Christians. We gather because God is gathering us. God is actually gathering people to himself and to each other. And that's why we gather together. I hope that, um, well, my, I guess my prayer has been this, this week that uh, we'd kind of catch on to that a little bit. Uh, we'd get a bit of God's vision of church, how he looks at church, how he sees it as the most significant thing in the world. Because I, I think that as we, as we grab that, it'll actually have all sorts of great effects practically for our church, for uh, the life of Church by the Bridge, for the life of 645 Church in 2014. Uh, so what we're going to do this evening is I'm going to spend a while talking about that, that big idea um, as the church is the most significant thing in the universe, in the world. Um, and then just look at two kind of implications of that. But I might pray. Did you guys pray before your Bible readings? I missed it. I'm going to pray. Let's pray. This kind of hurts to pray twice, can it? Let's do it. God, you're um, the one who's made us your church. You've brought us to yourself and to each other. 
And so we pray, please, that you would be the one who grows us as a church as well. Please work in us now, Lord, to help us to have your sort of mind, your sort of thinking on church and what it is. Please give us your sort of heart towards church. And please transform our actions so that we might be the kind of church that you long for us to be. We pray for your glory's sake. Amen. So why am I saying that the church is so significant? We're just a bunch of people getting together, right? Well, the church is the most significant thing in the world because it's the climax of God's story. It's the climax of God's story of scattering and gathering. It reads like a good story as well. You kind of you open the front page, you're kind of reading the introduction, and uh, you get this beautiful picture. Adam, Eve, their God, in these unbroken, beautiful relationships. That's kind of the ideal, the setting. And yet, you barely get into chapter one, and the whole thing falls apart. Adam and Eve turn away from God, and they turn against each other. So both the kind of vertical relationship and the horizontal They're fatally tainted. And so God actually scatters his people out of his presence. And the very next chapter, they're murdering each other. And so right at the beginning of the story, we realize what the crisis is. We see what's gone wrong. But as soon as we meet the crisis, not much later, we actually find out what the quest is in this story, in this great story of history. We find out also the character of our hero our hero God. See, in his great love, he commits himself to the great quest, and that is gathering these people who've been scattered from him, gathering them back to himself in loving relationship, and gathering them them to each other as well. That's his project. That's his quest throughout this story of history. And not long after we begin this story, we think we've come to the end. Because we come to Mount Sinai. God actually gathers his people out of slavery in Egypt to himself at Mount Sinai. It seems like we're done. That's what Deuteronomy 29 was talking about. Could you look at that with me? Chapter 29 and verse 10. All of you are standing today... Before the Lord your God. They've been gathered to God. They're right there in his presence. Verse 13. So that he may establish you today as his people. There they are. His people. Not a whole bunch of individuals necessarily. Not first and foremost. There are people gathered to God. And as they're there before him, he actually addresses them. He is present to them kind of in spirit and word, if you will. What's he saying? Well, it's kind of the whole law. It's very long. But in summary, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, love each other. Which is kind of the undoing of what what went wrong at the beginning, wasn't it? Vertical, horizontal, fixed up. That's the end. Quest complete. A little bit of an anticlimax, right? It wasn't quite as long a story as you were hoping. And you know what this moment is called, this great moment of gathering people to himself, teaching them to kind of love each other? It's called church. It actually uses the Greek word church. But like all good stories, um, 
there's a few twists. We know. It all goes wrong, doesn't it? His great vision is lost, as God's people actually do exactly what Adam and Eve did. Uh, You probably noticed as we were reading uh, this section, this massive kind of uncomfortable gear change, when we went from verse 15 to 22, everything seems to have gone wrong. Uh, These chapters actually, uh, chapter 28 to 30, kind of uh, foretell the whole history of Israel before it even happens. Uh, And what happens? Well, in summary, let's look at verse 28. The Lord uprooted them from their land in his anger, rage, and great wrath and threw them into another land where they are today. He was thrown, they were thrown out of his land, which means they were thrown from his presence, just like Adam and Eve. And we're thrown back into this same crisis, aren't we? The crisis, they're, they're lost from God. They need gathering. Why did this happen? Same as Adam and Eve. Verse 25. It's because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he'd made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so, as the story moves on of Israel, we actually find ourselves in that crisis situation again. They're scattered from him. Around about 586, 587 BC, you find God's people in Greece, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. They're all scattered everywhere. And in all these far-flung places, they're clinging on to the next chapter, to Deuteronomy chapter 30. They're clinging on to the fact that the story is not over. Would you read with me? They were told this right at the beginning of their history. When all these things happen to you, the blessings and curses I've set before you, and you come to your senses while you're in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and all your soul by doing everything I'm giving you today, when you've done all those things, when they've all happened, then he will restore your fortunes. That's their hope. He will have compassion on you and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, clinging on to the fact that, this, that God's heart that was revealed at the beginning, his character, his commitment to this quest hasn't changed. He's still at work. But it doesn't look like it, does it? Half a millennia, they're scattered from him. But the prophets keep speaking. They keep saying, it's still coming, guys. It's not over. Cling on to the hope. He's going to gather us. And as we're reading page after page of this story, we're thinking, when's it going to happen? And the tension is kind of mounting. And as the tension mounts, the expectations kind of mount as well. The prophets start saying things like, it's not going to be just like Sinai. It's going to be better. He's going to be present to us in such a glorious way. And it's not just going to be the Jews, it's going to be the whole world. And here's the key one. They say, he's going to forgive our sins. You know, sin, that that was the big problem, wasn't it? It was why they couldn't actually stay gathered to God. They kept getting scattered away. He's going to deal with that. 
but the story kind of keeps going on. It's kind of this expectation. And as we're reading, we almost get to the point that we're ready just to give up on this book because nothing seems to be happening. And then we get to the second last chapter, and Jesus walks onto the scene. And hear what's said about him in John chapter 11, verse 52. He died to gather into one the scattered children of God. The hero arrives on the scene. He came to gather the scattered people into one. Well, this is the kind of the idea that the Apostle Paul just grabs hold of and makes so much of, especially in his letter to the Ephesians. Could, would you turn there to our second reading, to Ephesians chapter 2? Uh, in chapter 1 of that letter, Paul has just said, um, this is God's all-time mega plan, that he's going to bring everything together in Jesus just kind of like what we've seen in the whole story of the Bible. He's saying that God is finally bringing this whole story to a climax, and it's happening in Jesus. And I kind of find myself thinking, when? Like Jesus turns up on the scene, and he doesn't really look that impressive, and he dies and he rises. And I wonder, when's he bringing this great fulfillment when everything's drawn together? People are gathered to God and gathered to each other. When? Like heaven? When he returns, is that when it happens? But the Apostle Paul's big surprise is, um, no, um, it's here. Uh, It's the church. Um, The church is it. The church is the fulfillment of that whole story. It's, It's, friends, it's us. You and I, us together, as God's gathered people, are the fulfillment, is the fulfillment, of the story of all of history. It's right here. Look around. I've got a friend who likes to write, um, and he wrote a book a little while ago, his first, his first novel, um, and I think he's a good writer. I don't really know because I don't read much, but he seems like a good writer. And um, as he wrote a chapter, he would send it to me and a bunch of other friends uh, so that we could read it and kind of give him some feedback. Um, and I loved it. It was fantastic. I don't read much uh, fiction, but this was great. It really had me hooked. Um, and so every time a chapter would come through, my wife and I would kind of set apart for some time. We'd sit down and we'd read it together. Uh, we loved it. It was quite kind of mysterious. There was all these kind of storylines, moving around all these characters, and we didn't quite know how they all lined up and how it was all going to work out. But we were hooked. And so finally, uh, the day came when the last chapter arrived in my inbox. This was a special moment. Uh, my wife and I were very excited. We didn't set any time aside. We just sat down right there, and uh, we thought, this is going to be great. Everything's going to come together. Um, and as we started reading um, this climactic chapter, as it began, we thought, this is, this is everything that was promised. Um, all the characters were there. Um, things had proceeded to a point where uh, there was going to be a, a massive kind of conflict or at least something was going to happen. The scene was like this sea cave and waves were crashing. There was this great storm. Uh, and everything happened and it ended. And we looked at each other and said, did you get it? I didn't. <laughs> it was just like we completely missed it. Didn't understand the climax at all. It was a bit depressing. It had to be explained to us, and he had to adjust a few things. 
And unfortunately, this book has not yet been published. He's now working on a ghost story in World War II Japan. It's much more enjoyable. Friends, I think this is much like the story of history. We get to the climax and we miss it. Because it looks kind of lame. Us? Church? Really? That's the climax of the story of all history? Yeah. Ephesians 2, verse 13. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, scattered from God, have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. In Jesus, we are chosen, forgiven, rescued, gathered to God so that we have confidence to access him and call him our father. Do you have that? Do you know forgiveness? It's yours in Jesus. And that's not all. He hasn't just gathered us to himself in Jesus. This is what Paul wants to make such a big point about. In Jesus, you're gathered to each other. If, you're, if you come to God in the one body of Jesus, by the one spirit, verse 18, and I come to God in the one body of Jesus, by one spirit, then we're brought together. He is our peace. Verse 15, we are one new humanity in him. Well, that's the climax of the story, isn't it? That we have been gathered to God and to each other permanently forgiven. We're never going to lose that. That's the church. That's you and me. That's us. The climax of the story. Friends, I think, I believe that that's the deep down reason we know we ought to come to church. Because this is what God has been working at through all of history. Gathering people not just to himself, but to other people. Gathering them together to each other. That's why we gather. Last week after church, um, I was chatting with a visitor. Um, I noticed he'd, he'd kind of come in at the very beginning of the service, chatted with a few people. As soon as the service kind of got started, he uh, left again. Um, and then right at the end, he came back in again and hung around talking with people over, over supper. And I asked him, why, why was that? He said to me, I don't need church to teach me. I can do that by myself. I don't need church for prayer. I can do that by myself. don't need church for worship. I can do that by myself. I just need church for fellowship. He has never belonged to a church. Do you see he's got something wrong there? I meet a lot of people who tell me, Dan, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Is that true? Well, I think there's truth in it, and yet, friends, doesn't that completely miss half the story? Doesn't it? God says, I have been at work throughout the whole of history through the blood of my dear son to gather people, not just to myself, but to each other. And we say, it's not that important. It's optional. 
You don't need to gather together to be Christian. Friends, God has not just been at work to gather a bunch of individuals so they might have a relationship with him and go to heaven at the end. God's heart is for church. His quest was for church. Where is our heart? Are we in line with his? Well, I think that's kind of the big picture. You can talk about church in a whole bunch of different ways, but that's how we've gone about it this evening. He has gathered us to himself and to each other. Big picture. I now want to kind of discuss two sort of implications of that reality. And the first is this. The church isn't for anything but the glory of God. We love to know what things are for. It's quite important to know what things are for. Um, I was riding my bike back from Newtown on Thursday. I came across the Harbour Bridge, and um, you might know the stairs on the other side. They've got a bike ramp down them. I don't know if you know that. It's quite steep. Um, well, I was stupidly riding my bike down those, that ramp, and my brakes weren't working very well. So I was going rather faster than I usually would. And if you know it, that kind of goes up and down and up and down. And so I was kind of, I was like galloping on a horse. And I got to the bottom and it was kind of, and something just went, and I looked down and um, after I stopped, which was about 20 meters away, and I, I saw this metal bracket had just kind of fallen off my bike. Um, and the question that was important to ask at that point in time was, what is that for? <laughs> um, is that a safety feature? I'm not sure. Um, you'll be pleased to know I did get home safely, although I don't know what that thing is for still. Um, so what then is church for? It's good to know what things are for. What is church for? Is it for helping us live the Christian life? Is it for good works in society? It certainly does those things. Absolutely, praise God, it does those things. Are they what it's fundamentally for? No. The church isn't actually for anything. See, right throughout history, God has been working on this project to build this thing called the church. There's not something beyond that. You know, the church doesn't exist for some other reason other than the glory of God. It doesn't exist to do something else, fundamentally. Sure, the church might look a little bit lame. Sure, God is going to kind of transform us when Jesus returns, but he's not going to make us something else. We're, we're the church. And just by being the church, God is glorified. Ephesians 3.10 says that the church proclaims the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms just by being. Now, this has got a bit of a sharp edge, actually. You see, it's, um, it's about quarter past six. It's about time to head off to church, but there's this other thing that you could be doing. I think I might give church a miss this week. I'm, go- I'm going pretty well with God. But what if church isn't actually for helping you go well with God? 
I'll just listen to the sermon online, I think. What if church isn't actually for listening to sermons? Although, thank you for listening. I'm not on any rosters tonight, so it won't really matter. What if church is not for serving on rosters, and praise God, it is not? <laughs> church, friends, church is not for anything except the glory of God. And God is glorified as we just be the church. Do you want to glorify God? Okay, how do we be the church then? What does that mean? Well, that's the second implication. What we're seeking to do as a church is just to give expression to who we are. God's made us the rescued people of his that are gathered to him, gathered to each other. Our job is just to give expression to that, to just kind of give it arms and legs, you know, to be that. That's what we're trying to do as a church. And if I, I, I don't know if this has been clear so far, so let me just say it here so it is clear. When I say the church, um, I don't mean like, you know, the Anglican denomination or something. Um, and when I say we as a church, I don't just mean kind of the staff team or um, this hour and a half we're going to spend together. Uh, what I'm talking about is... Um, our shared life of fellowship together, which has as its climax of the week our gathering. So we want our whole shared life together to be an expression of this great reality that we're people gathered to God and each other. Okay then, so uh, if we're people gathered to God, how do we give that expression? Well, it'll, it'll look like things like... Um, having God address us, listening to his word. It looked like responding to him in, in, in prayer and singing together. If we've been gathered to God, then we're going to seek to please him. We're going to seek to be like Jesus. We're going to seek to tell others about him. Do acts of good service. These are all kind of implications of who we are. The second part of it's a bit more... Um, challenging, though, I think. What does it look like for us to be gathered to each other? How do we give that expression? Could we just stay at home and listen to sermons online? Does that give good expression to this truth? Could we kind of hop from church to church? Could we just kind of turn up once a month? Well, sometimes that's necessary. But we really want to be working at giving the best expression we can of who we are and what God has done in us. So surely that means at least turning up to church regularly. Can I ask you, friends, for the glory of God to just be here at church, to commit 2014, I'm going to come to church. But surely it's more than that, isn't it? I was up in um, Nelson Bay on holidays just recently. Uh, it was beautiful. Anyone been there? Beautiful. <sighs> Wish I was still there. Um, but I went to church while I was there. I went to Nelson Bay Baptist Church, great church. Um, I don't know about you guys, but who's going to church when they're on holidays? Some people? Yeah? A few hands? It's a bit weird, isn't it? Like, it's great, but it's a bit weird. So we had communion together at Nelson Bay Baptist, and that was great. You know, you guys are united to Jesus. 
I'm united to Jesus. We're kind of united. That's fantastic. But not for a moment did I kind of think, yeah, this is a great, rich expression of being gathered together. I didn't even know them. Surely being gathered together, united in Jesus, demands of us a kind of rich expression, rich relationships. So as you read through the New Testament and it explains what the Christian life looks like, it keeps talking about relationships. It all happens in relationship. So at least 47 times it uses this language of one another. Love one another. Confess your sins to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Now I challenge you to um, wash one another's feet by yourself. You'd look very strange. This has to happen in relationship. The New Testament calls us to rich relationships, as Paul Dale would say, doing life together. and encourages us to be open with each other. And it means things like, don't nick off straight after church. It means things like, make plans to see each other outside of this hour and a half. Do fellowship together. What's that going to look like for 645 Church in 2014 to express this reality? I don't know. Maybe you could join a hive group, a pod. I think these, these little triplets are going to be great opportunities for really giving rich expression to this truth that we are gathered to each other. Friends, God is the one who in his great grace has gathered you, brothers and sisters, to himself, forgiven you, given you a great hope. And he's gathered you, brothers and sisters, to each other. Let's work in 2014 at giving expression to that reality, to his glory, for his glory, that he'd be made to look wonderful like he is.